Welcome to the Healing Pain Podcast. Your host, Dr. Joe Tata, leads the conversation around the way pain is treated in the U.S. and around the world with experts from the fields of medicine, physical therapy, nutrition, personal development, exercise, psychology, and more. Each week, you can listen to receive free information about ways to treat and reverse chronic persistent pain. Now, here is Dr. Joe Tata. Hey there, welcome back to another episode of the Healing Pain Podcast. As always, it's a pleasure to be with you. This week, we're going to talk about primary spine care providers. If you follow this podcast for quite some time, you know that spine problems, spine disorders are among the most common, most costly, and most disabling problems that we experience in Western society with regard to chronic pain. And for the purpose of this podcast, today when we talk about spine-related disorders, we're really talking about a group of conditions that include back pain, neck pain, all the various types of headaches and migraines, radiculopathy, and other types of symptoms that are related directly to the spine. And if you want to hear a interesting and perhaps shocking statistic, virtually 100% of the population is affected by this group of disorders at least once in their life, if not twice. Now, one proposed solution to treating chronic spinal pain in our healthcare system is to train practitioners who can function as primary care providers for the care of the spine itself. Now, there are already physical therapists and chiropractors who function in a primary care role for the the spine, although we don't have enough that are trained adequately, and some may lack the clinical skills and the confidence to function in this primary care provider role. And at times, these can be big shoes to fill because a primary spine care provider really requires a particular skill set that includes the ability to apply the latest evidence-based procedures, adequately educate and motivate patients, and then, of course, prevent and manage disability. But the interesting thing is that much of this has already been tested, and it's proved to improve patient satisfaction, reduce pain, reduce disability, and, of course, reduce medical costs. Joining us on today's episode to discuss this important topic is Dr. Marsha Spoto, who is a professor at Nazareth College in Rochester, New York. What's interesting about Marsha is that she holds both a degree in physical therapy as well as in chiropractic medicine. So she really understands the care of the spine from two very important professions that contribute to the health of spine care throughout our nation and perhaps even globally. Marsha has over 35 years of educating and caring for the spine. She also taught classes, of course, at the university level with regard to musculoskeletal management, pain management, and differential diagnosis. She's maintained an active private practice called Star Physical Therapy, which is in Fairport, New York. She also serves on the American Physical Therapy Association's Orthopedic Practice Committee and is a co-chair of the New York Physical Therapy Association Public Policy Committee. And last, Dr. Spoda does serve as a consultant for Blue Cross Blue Shield, where she is a member of the Spine Care Pathway Program. Okay, so if you want more information about today's podcast, if you want more, more information to read along and follow along with us, I recommend you download a paper that's free today. It's called The Establishment of a Primary Spine Care Practitioner and its Benefit to the Healthcare Reform System in the United States of America. To download this free resource, all you have to do is text the word or text 133 download to the number 44222. That's 133 download to the number 44222. Or of course, you can go to the website at integrativepainscienceinstitute.com forward slash 132 download, and you can download it directly from there. That's integrativepainscienceinstitute.com forward slash 132 download. This is an evidence based paper from a reliable uh, medical journal that talks about the establishment of a primary spine care practitioner. Really great information, of course, if you are a practitioner who works with spinal care to check this out, but also if you're just someone who's interested to learn more information about care of the spine. Okay, without further ado, let's begin with Dr. Marsha Spoto. Hi, Marsha. Welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here. Hey, Joe. It's great to be here. I appreciate the opportunity to speak to you and and just share information with you and your audience. Yeah, you've got so many great things going on, both in your practice and some of the work you're doing, as well as the Opioid Alternative Task Force, which both you and I are involved on through the New York Physical Therapy Association. We'll talk about all those things. But one of the things when I first met you and started reading about you know, your history and your education is you're, of course, a physical therapist. 
as well as you also have a degree in chiropractic. So you're a doctor of chiropractic. Tell us about kind of your journey into physical therapy and as well as your journey through the chiropractic world. So yes, I came interested in physical therapy when I was actually in college. And way back then, it was you know not so easy to transfer into a physical therapy program. There weren't that many programs. But I did transfer into a developing program at Damon College. This was in the late 70s. I had received a bachelor's degree there. Actually, interestingly, the chair of my program at the time, uh, Richard Schweikler, he was a mechanotherapist, which not many people have heard about mechanotherapists nowadays. But it was a certification, essentially, in manual therapy. And he integrated some of that into our curriculum. And I became very interested in, in chiropractic as a profession to learn more about manual therapies. And uh, he actually encouraged me to go on to school. And, and also at that time, physical therapists were not autonomous practitioners. Of course, we are now. So that was also somewhat of a lure to go on into graduate program in chiropractic. So that's pretty much how things evolved that way. Did you practice a little bit between your bachelor's and the chiropractic degree, or did you just go straight into it? Yes, actually, I had jobs waiting for me everywhere. I worked as a county health practitioner for during the summers when I was off. I actually taught at the chiropractic college. I taught their physical therapy modalities piece as an adjunct faculty. I also was offered a job there in a hospital on weekends overseeing their physical therapy department. I did a little bit of pediatric care as well. I was all over the place. And, and all of those experiences were, you know, all contributed really to my career and my path. So. Mm. And then so once, I guess, once you're done with your chiropractic degree, did you start your own private practice or did you wind up in a hospital working in a PT department or did you wind up in a chiropractic clinic? How did that kind of fall out? Yeah, so I left out a little piece and that was my husband and I, we got married in the summer, went off to chiropractic college together. So we both went through that program together, and we opened a practice together in a suburb of Rochester pretty much right after we graduated. And that's Star Physical Therapy. We are still there today. And although initially we offered both chiropractic and physical therapy services, we found that the demand for physical therapy services was a little bit greater, and our practice just sort of grew that way. And eventually my husband retired his practice and managed our physical therapy business. And mm. I no longer practice in the, at STAR, but I'm proud that my oldest daughter is one of our staff physical therapists. And I have another daughter who is managing our practice. So it's sort of been handed down through the generations. That's wonderful because I know how much time can go into a practice. I think it's great that you have a way to see that evolve and live on you know, potentially beyond you and into your, your children. It's awesome. I mean, you guys are like a, a musculoskeletal powerhouse in your family. <laughs> it's great to see. I know you've done a lot of work with care pathways. And the word care pathway may, you know, ring a bell to a lot of practitioners involved in musculoskeletal medicine. And some people may not have an exact idea what that is. Can you describe what a care pathway is for us? Okay, that's a great question. And one of the points of confusion is it's called many different things. So there's no really no consistent way to define it. Sometimes it's called a clinical pathway, you know, an integrated care pathway. There's a lot of different terms. But a care pathway is really a way to navigate the healthcare system. And in a way that makes sense based on our what we know, you know, what we know from research, clinical guidelines, and so forth. And it's a real challenge in a fragmented healthcare system like ours because, you know, we offer on the one hand so much choice to patients, right? Patients want choice and that's all a good thing, except that sometimes it creates unnecessary expenses and it takes people down a road they really don't want to go down and people really need a little bit more guidance. So, you know, threading that needle is tough, but a care pathway is a way to do that, you know, particularly, it's much easier in an integrated healthcare system, but especially with community-based types of services, having a care pathway kind of establishes expectations. It's defined in many different ways, but I, I did come up with my own definition that I thought kind of captured the essence of it. And that is the preferred route that patients with a specific condition, so it's condition-specific, so if you have heart disease, this is the ideal pathway, diabetes, 
in this case, you know, what I'm going to be talking about is spine care, okay, mm -hmm. for so people with spine pain. So it is linked to a specific condition, and so it's that route that you would take to navigate the multiple decision-making processes involved in the treatment in an otherwise fragmented healthcare system. So that's mm -hmm. really kind of the definition. It's this preferred route that you would take that makes most sense. So you do the simple things first, you wait to do the more complex things later. So as the care pathway, and of course, we can talk about it through the lens of spine pain. I think it's probably mm -hmm. the easiest thing and you've done a lot of work in that area. Is the care pathway set up for the practitioner as a guide or is it set up for the patient to navigate the healthcare system? Well, it's gonna involve both. When I talk about the care pathway here in, in Rochester, you know, you have to involve the providers and you have to involve the consumers. So it's really for both. Although I can talk also about some supplemental, you know, tools that we have for particularly for people with, for the consumers, for people yeah. with, with spine pain. Let's talk about first, where does someone get stuck and where do they struggle with regard to the healthcare system, with regard to finding help for their care and management of their back pain, which has helped inform that care pathway? Okay, so that's a great question. And that kind of sets the background for the problem. And we have right now almost too many choices, okay? Scott Haldeman, who is a, he's an MD, he's a chiropractor, and he's a PhD. And he's written extensively on spine pain. But he published an article, oh gosh, it was back in the 90s, and it was called The Supermarket Approach to Treating Back Pain. And he really created this analogy of going in a supermarket and having all these aisles, right, that you can go down, right? So you have the pharmaceutical aisle, you have the, you know, the exercise aisle, you have the surgery aisle, and so on and so forth. And to the consumer, it's just too much for them to weigh out what are the risks and benefits of each one of these paths that I would take here. So that really is kind of the crux of it. That's the problem is there are almost too many choices. And we can get information anywhere now, right? So people go on the internet, people talk to their friends and family, and everybody's got a different story, and especially with a condition like back pain, because almost everybody has had some experience with back pain. So you're going to hear all kinds of stories. And so we see a very cumbersome decision-making process out there. And so, you know, the consumers are left with having to just use their own experiences and all this various input. And it sometimes, again, takes them down a road they don't want to go. And what we also find is it's so critical to make that first step to be the right choice in where to go, because mm -hmm. that can really lay the groundwork for what happens next. So with a spine care pathway, a critical piece is the first touch provider if a person is seeking care. And is there any indication of who that first touch provider should be for spinal care? Well, for spinal care, the first touch providers, as we have seen, really the people that are best qualified to serve as first touch providers uh, that have the best educational background are conservative spine care providers. And the bulk of that would be fulfilled really by either chiropractors or physical therapists. They are really have a very similar, you know, skill set, if you will, to manage spine pain at a primary care level. So those are deemed the professions that best fulfill this definition of what a primary spine practitioner would look like. Where might someone wind up in potentially a tricky situation if they chose the, I don't want to say wrong provider, if they chose a provider that may not be up to date on the latest pain science and pain care, where they might potentially go down the pathway of one that does not help them lead a life where they can function better. Thus, the community-wide effort to train and educate the providers, it's really because people can access the system anywhere, right? So you've got to educate the primary care physicians, other specialist providers, as well as the chiropractic and physical therapy professionals who will be managing this. So, and I'm sure we'll talk about it, but Excellus Blue Cross Blue Shield had developed this training program that I've been involved with for several years. And so they essentially have created a referral source based on those that have completed this training. Mm. And, you know, we can certainly talk more about the training. Yeah, I'm interested in the training. What is the, so this is through Blue Cross Blue Shield. What does the training look like? So they're training practitioners? Yeah, so just to step back for a second, 
the spine care pathway really has been a community-wide effort, right? So, you know, we kind of talked about that a little bit. So there's some consumer side that I'll talk about later, but there's also, again, the provider side. So, and it's really coordinating this care. So you can't just go to one provider type and educate them. It really has to be, you know, more universal. So the spine care pathway, and I'm going to give credit to my colleague, Brian Justice, who is a chiropractor, but was hired by Excellus Blue Cross and Blue Shield specifically because they had already developed this concept of the spine care pathway, he and some other colleagues. And so he was hired as a medical director to spearhead and direct the spine care pathway initiative. And that has involved not only education of the physical therapy and chiropractic providers, and that has extended to other types of providers, but it's also going to primary care providers and discussing with them, you know, what are the benefits of sending a patient, for example, that comes to you with back pain to a chiropractor or a physical therapist, and again, one that's been specifically trained in this pathway. But the training, getting back to the question of the training itself, the education, and that has evolved over time. So it started with 36 hours of post-professional continuing education, and currently we're at 24 hours of post-professional training for those that are considered pathway trained. And so the training really is, and I can get in and talk to you a little bit about the curriculum if you want to go down that route right now. I- yeah, I think it's valuable information. People would like to hear about what you've developed and what people have benefited from. Yeah. So the curriculum stems from you know, what we want to see is, as far as the qualifications of a, what I'm going to refer to now as a primary spine practitioner, so PSP. So PSPs, first and foremost, have to be able to manage most people with spine pain. So they can manage most patients. And of course, we know that most people with back pain or spine pain are managed very well at the conservative treatment level. So that's the first qualification. And in order to do that and fulfill that criteria, you have to be well-versed in differential diagnosis. They have to be able to engage in medical triage or whatever you want to make reference to, but it's the ability to make sure that the person that is in your office belongs there and doesn't belong someplace else, so red flag screening and so forth, so that these providers know where to refer patients if they need to be referred out. The other qualification is that they have to be very well-versed in the biopsychosocial model of healthcare. And so, and I've actually, that's the piece that I've been teaching largely in the training sessions. And part of that means the ability to identify and address psychosocial factors that may be impacting the patient's condition. Uh, So that's another qualification. We also talk about this appreciation for minimalization or a minimalistic approach. So, you know, we don't want people providing services or, you know, providing any more treatment that is necessary. And, Mm -hmm. you know, one of the problems in spine care is we're really over-treating. spine pain in the U.S. So that's another, you know, sort of qualification. And then I think finally it would be the ability to really understand the roles and responsibilities of all healthcare providers so that they know when to refer, where to refer appropriately, and then to follow up on that too. So that just like a primary care physician would be, you know, managing the health of the patient overall, there should be the central communication So that's what's expected of the PSP. And so the curriculum more or less reflects that. So we really get in depth on different types of spinal conditions and what they're presenting clinical signs and symptoms would be so that, again, the PSPs can engage in in differential diagnosis. We follow more or less a clinical reasoning process in spine that was originally developed by Don Murphy, who is a chiropractor. He practices in Rhode Island. actually is director of a spine care program at a major hospital system in Rhode Island. He also is a clinical assistant professor in the family medicine department at Brown University. And so he's kind of really deeply immersed in this uh, spine care pathway. He has developed what he calls the CRISP protocol, which CRISP is an acronym for clinical reasoning and spine pain. And it really is it's very actually what was great about it was so congruent with what I was teaching already in an entry level physical therapy program. And I had been teaching the musculoskeletal management part of the curriculum. So very consistent with what is being currently, I think, 
taught in many physical therapy educational programs. So it's just this process of, again, differential diagnosis of categorizing patients based on clinical signs and symptoms that would best direct the appropriate treatment, providing those treatments, and probably foundationally, the treatments consist of exercise interventions, manual skills, manipulation, spine manipulation, really heavy emphasis on exercise interventions in patient education. And then, you know, also, you know, we do touch upon cognitive behavioral interventions. And so that's more or less integrated contextually into the care of the patient. And that kind of gets into some of the psychosocial issues that surround spine pain. It's a pretty good, I think, overall broad description of what the curriculum is like. And you mentioned it's 24 hours. Is that a curriculum that's delivered in person in a workshop format? Or is it something that's it online? And we're actually looking now, it's a good question because we're looking now at a, more of a hybrid model. And these sessions have been primarily, you know, in the upstate New York region. So where Excellus's reach is, so Syracuse, Buffalo, Rochester area. We've also gone into some integrated healthcare systems a little bit further uh, downstate. And I also want to mention here, not to confuse things, but there is now also a certification program for PSPs. Mm-hmm. And that is really just started at the University of Pittsburgh. So they are actually creating, and that is also a hybrid program, and it's 120 hours. And so clinicians and, you know, in large part, these are physical therapists and chiropractors that are going through their program and they can actually receive a certification as a PSP, as a primary spine practitioner. And that is actually starting to get a little bit more attention. But our program is more of a training. It doesn't result in a credential, but it does result in a recognition that these providers have been pathway trained. Right. And as part of that framework that you laid out there with regard to the pathway there, you mentioned the biopsychosocial model. How many hours do you, I mean, if you can, you know, I'm sure it's probably seeded throughout the entire training, but how much time do you dedicate to that topic? And I guess to the topic of pain science. I would say, because I teach that component, I'd say there's a good, you know, three or four hours heavy into, you know, we have to talk about the pain science, of course, because that's the avenue through which the psychosocial factors come in. And so we kind of set that stage. So we go in to talk about pain mechanisms and, you know, the difference between acute and chronic pain from a neurophysiological standpoint, and then get into, you know, how these psych factors, you know, how they play into the pain experience. And then it kind of flows from there as to what you can do to actually address those in care. And, you know, there's strong distinction between psychiatric illness and psychological factors involved in the pain experience. And, you know, clearly that's something that a conservative practitioner should be able to manage, manage most of the problems that people have with how they view their pain and how they react to their pain and all these things that can negatively, unfortunately, impact their pain. So I would say about probably about three hours of in-depth, you know, where we really go through these psych factors. We go over how to screen for them. So we talk about yellow flag screening. And, and then what do you do when a patient displays these behaviors? So we really emphasize very much this contextualization of cognitive behavioral interventions within the, the sessions. And of course, one of the benefits of the chiropractic and physical therapy professions is that we have time with patients. We spend time with patients. So we have these opportunities to educate them while we may be doing other things. That's what's very much emphasized. And so, yeah, it's seeded throughout the entire, you know, 24 hours, I would Mm. say. And then you also mentioned manipulation, which of course is common to the chiropractic profession. In the PT profession, it's not necessarily as common, although there are PTs that do study and integrate that into their practice. As part of that training, do you train any practitioner who is lacking in that particular skill? Because there is some really supportive research around, you know, manipulation for back pain? So that's another really good question. It is an area, if you will, where the two professions diverge in terms of the level of education. Now, I can say that the physical therapy profession, you know, has really increased its standards with regard to specifically thrust types of, you know, mobilization techniques, whereas it's always been the tradition of physical therapy to 
provide joint mobilization types of interventions, but thrust techniques or high velocity techniques that fall under the manipulation area, you know, have not been as consistently taught in entry level physical therapy education. That is changing. And, you know, I, of course, with my background, I had always taught thrust technique to our students so that they had enough where they could take that to any level they want. And there's now so many different certification programs available to physical therapists if they want to further their skills, if you will. But that is not actually part of the training. So the expectation is that PSPs will have this skill, will possess this skill. And certainly in the 120 hours at the University of Pittsburgh, they get into actual, you know, instruction in manipulation. But because of our limitations, we don't do that, but it is an expectation. And it's a really good question. And as long as we're talking about it, there's almost nothing that's been studied more than manipulation for treating back pain, no other conservative intervention. And what we know about it is that it's not magical. It does help some people. We've gotten a little bit better at identifying the patients that seem to benefit from manipulation. And so we do discuss that and talk about that in the training, how to better identify patients that would be you know, good candidates for this type of therapy. But manipulation is interesting because it kind of crosses, you know, on the one hand, we really try to emphasize active approaches to treating pain and manipulation is passive, right? So, you know, we have to be a little careful about how strongly we emphasize that. But there's no question that it helps patients. But after reading so much literature on manipulation over the years, I have, first of all, come to view it much more simple, more simple explanations for why it helps. And I really try to view it now as just yet another tool that can help patients with pain. You know, we're not putting bones back in place. We're basically we're putting an input into the nervous system that can help to inhibit pain. And it does so generally temporarily, but enough so to get people to be active. Mm -hmm. So the way we emphasize manipulative therapy in the spine care pathway is that it is, yes, another tool, but it should never be used exclusively. You should never try to encourage patient dependence on manipulation to feel better but it's just a means to an end. And if we can get the patient to t then move into an active approach quicker, that's really its utility in, in treating spine problems. Some of that is my own personal opinions, yeah. uh, but that is the way you know, we present it, if you will. Yeah. I mean, your opinion is, of course, welcome on the podcast, but I think your opinion is well supported by a lot of research. And I just kind of want to just sit on this topic for a moment about manipulation, because I think it could be helpful for people who listen to this podcast that are not practitioners who are maybe someone who's looking for relief. And I think the message you're really saying is that manipulation has its place. It can help as part of your care. But can you talk to us just a little bit more on, let's say, the looking at manipulation as a technique that helps prevent subluxation or puts your joints back in alignment or prevents things from slipping out of place? versus looking at manipulation more from a pain science lens? Yeah, so, you know, <laughs> that's a really good question. I'm going to try to answer it more concisely. But, you know, first of all, there's absolutely no evidence that manipulation is going to change the relationship between, that you're talking about spine, two vertebra, okay? There's no evidence to support that there is a change in relationship there may be because of the impact of manipulation on decreasing muscle spasm, but you know, we're not moving bones, okay? Even though that was the theory around which chiropractic was developed. And chiropractic has come, you know, has come a long way. And although there are still practitioners out there that adhere to that kind of, which really is a philosophy now, there's no science there anymore, which also calls into question because that would also require, right, that we had some ability to accurately determine if there are positional changes in the vertebra. And that has also been pretty much shot down by science. There's the reliability of practitioners to be able to make determinations on position of vertebra, for example, 
What we instead do is we assess joints dynamically to ascertain the relative amount of movement there, right? So, and all we've really been able to do there is to determine, is it normal mobility? Is it a little hyper or is it a little hypo? And even that is questionable because you'd have to ask, is that what's normal? So you, you have to use a within patient reference point or reference standard. But there is some research to support the ability to determine whether or not there is normal mobility. We just can't refine it to any degree. And again, I find that when you really step back and look at the research, the assessment approach does not link at all to the outcomes, right? Whether or not there's a favorable outcome. And when you really dig through the evidence, you know, the need for specificity to make sure we're on the right segment, for example, that can't be supported either. We know that, you know, if we put a force into the spine, we're going to have movement up and down and you know, across several segmental regions. So this idea that we can really specifically target our segment, that can't be supported either. And then now what's just really interesting is a shift in the literature and looking at the hypoalgesic effect of manipulation. That now there's something that we can grow, right? So there's you know, been numerous studies that have shown that there is a pain inhibitory effect of manipulation. And you know, if you kind of look at it through that lens, then the specificity doesn't seem to matter as much anymore. And we don't have to worry so much about the reliability of our assessment approach. And it's an easier thing for patients also to grasp. And to me, it is better from the standpoint of, again, empowering patients. Because if a patient comes in and they think, my spine is out of place, okay, then they are going to depend on someone else to put it back in place, right? Those aren't the messages we want to give people with spine pain. We want to really empower them that they can help themselves. So I think it, it all really aligns much better if we go to more of a neurophysiological effect of manipulative therapy rather than a mechanical effect. Mm-hmm. Very well said. I think it's lots of great information there that I know a lot of practitioners appreciate. I think people who have pain will start to look at their pain in a different way with regard to manual therapy. Along the lines of helping people with you know, moving forward and the interventions that we use as physical therapists. Can you speak to the power of language in managing spine pain and how language can help us to change really our entire culture of pain? That's a great question. And that's something that's really emphasized a lot in the pathway training is the language piece. So we really emphasize things not to say as well as things to say. So, (laughs) you know, we're always trying to build our patient's self-efficacy, you know, through the way we talk to the patients. And I used to tell my students, and this was something that I always, they never wanted to hear this, right? But I always said, you know, I think what you say to patients in the end is a lot more important than whatever you do to patients. They don't want to hear this because they want to think that what they are doing is what's helping the patient. But I learned through my years of practice that, no, it really, you know, that's a critical piece, how you're communicating, the messages you're providing you know, what you're doing to their fundamental beliefs about their pain and and their spine and so forth. So for an example of a term that we don't want to use is degenerative joint disease. Okay, so that's a term that we're really trying to take out of the lexicon. I mean, it's, you are probably familiar with the study that was done, I think it was 2015. It was a systematic review, right, where they looked at numerous studies that had been performed with patients without back pain, right? So what they did was imaged all these people that did not have back pain or spine pain. And then they looked for specific pathologies. And then they presented their findings based on age groupings, right? So what they found, for example, was if we just look at degenerative disc disease, okay? So at the young age of 30, guess what? Over 50% of people have some evidence of degenerative disc disease. By the time you get to 40, it's almost 70%. Mm. And, you know, by the time you're 60, then it's normal, right? It's clearly normal to have degenerative disc disease. And so this creates just a completely different perspective for patients. And, you know, if you step back and just think for a second on what a patient thinks when you tell them they have degenerative disc disease, first thing they hear is disease. Mm. And the second thing they hear is degenerative. And so what's the message there? You know, it's deteriorating. 
you know, and it's only going to get worse over time and there's nothing I can do about it. And so it's all the wrong messaging. And so, you know, we have to be careful. So what we talk about, we encourage the practitioners to make reference to gray hair of the spine. So we don't look at people with gray hair and say, oh my gosh, they have gray hair disease. It is part of the aging process. And it also doesn't equate the pain. So just because it's present and the person has pain does not mean it's causing the patient's pain. So we really tried to get away from that. And I, as a side note, one of the things Excellus has been able to do with this initiative is that they now, for our local radiologists, they are providing the normative data on their imaging reports, which has really changed things. Okay, that, when a patient, That's huge. That, that's huge. Yeah, because that so huge. many people come in with their MRI report in their hand, and that's the typed out version, and they're yep. looking at all these fancy medical terms for things that, as you're saying here, are normal. There's an inherent conflict, though, because you have a patient who saw a very highly skilled physician who spent a lot of years studying how to image the body and provides this report with, you know, degenerative disc and bulging this, and this is lipped, and this is protruding, and there's a spur here or an osteophyte. And then as a practitioner, as a conservative pain care practitioner, we're trying to normalize the process for them. And these are competing beliefs <laughs> that we as PTs and chiropractors now have to, you know, like spend time, literally spend whole chunks of a session or weave throughout our sessions over the course of four to however many weeks you're with the patient to normalize that process. And that can be very challenging. And once those seeds are planted, it's really difficult to change that. And that's why the first touch provider is so important. If the patient never hears that in the beginning, it's much easier. Yeah. So, but the other thing about language that I want to mention too, it's not just the language we're using with patients, but what, you know, the language we're using you know, with other providers. And so I want to talk a little bit about this interesting exchange that we had in one of the training sessions. We were at an integrated healthcare system, and we had the good fortune in the audience of having a mix of providers, a nice provider mix. So we had an orthopedic spine surgeon. You know, we had an internal medicine physician there. We had a lot of, we had nurse practitioners. We had physician assistants in physical therapists and chiropractors. So this provided this great opportunity for communication among different providers. And one in the orthopedic spine surgeon raised this issue of this term that a lot of his patients use when they come in that they've been told by their physical therapist or their chiropractor that they have instability. So there's this term instability. And of course, we know in our profession that we talk about this lumbar instability syndrome, and we spend a lot of time talking about that. And of course, there is a difference between true mechanical instability where there's this loss of integrity of the joint versus what we usually mean, which is more of a clinical instability, which is really more of a motor control impairment, or if you want, you know, in patient language, it may be a lack of coordination of movement. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a big difference between saying, well, you're, you know, you have a problem with your muscle coordination versus you have instability in your spine. So if you think about, first of all, the patient thinking, well, I'm unstable. And again, that provokes fear and these things that actually negatively feed into the pain experience. But on the other side of it is these physicians who don't know what we're talking about when we use terms like that. So, you know, one of the other emphasis in the educational program is creating a common language so that we can also communicate with each other as providers because successful management of people with spine pain requires coordination among different providers. So yeah. the language piece is, is really important. And then, you know, the other thing is just providing these messages that encourage self-efficacy, that kind of encourage the patient taking responsibility for their problems. All of this kind of falls under that language piece. So that it really is, is important. Yeah, we almost need like a second language course in how to message what it is we're doing and how it's beneficial for people. It's a big part that's missing from all of our practice. Even those of us that have studied pain science, it's still, well, it may be different for the new PTs that are coming out of school. In some way, they're more exposed to this. But for someone like me who's been practicing for quite a while, even in my brain, I have these competing <laughs> little nuggets of information that sometimes I have to double check on, you know, am I really saying this in a way that is consistent with what some of the newest information is out there? Yeah, and I think the students coming out now, you know, they should know the difference between acute and chronic pain. You know, one of the things that led me down to this interest in, in pain was just 
I didn't know the difference. You know, I thought I had all these tools when I graduated. I'd been in school for eight years, higher education. I was ready, you know, to hit the ground running. And some of my early experiences with patients were eye-opening. You know, I was using these tools that are effective for acute pain to try to treat chronic pain, and they just don't work. And if you don't understand the difference, you know, that's a problem. And then on the flip side of that is that, you know, probably one of the best ways to prevent chronic pain is to treat acute pain effectively. So, Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. You're involved on the American Physical Therapy Association Orthopedic Practice Committee, and you co-chaired the New York Physical Therapy Association Public Policy Committee. I mean, you've been well-rooted in the physical therapy profession for a long time in a lot of different areas. What do you think we need to do in our healthcare system kind of overall to improve pain management beyond what we've, of course, spoke about today? You know, one of the keys with the pathway is that it's translating new knowledge into actual practice changes. And of course, that's hard. Okay? Very hard. Yes. We have a very fragmented healthcare system. It's the most confusing healthcare system in the world. We all know that, right? We have this mix of government-run programs, private programs. We have systems within systems. We have workers' comp. We have no fault. We have a VA system. It's just really complex, and it's hard to create changes because we also have a competitive system. You know, we're competing. You know, we'd like to think everybody's there and everybody just wants the same thing. Everybody just wants a healthy population at the lowest cost. And that's really not, you know, what we find and that people are all for change as long as it doesn't negatively impact them. So we have these cultures, right, that are very rooted. And that's been the biggest challenge of, of getting any change accomplished. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, I am involved in advocacy work, because I've seen one of the problems is, for example, that in our healthcare system, we now have more non-physician providers than physician providers, yet where are they at the policymaking level, right? So, you know, I think we need more people at the table. We need more voices. We need more diverse voices because it's, you know, policy changes is one way to do it. That's the top-down part. So there are some top-down things that we can do, I think. But I think also there's bottom-up things that we can do. And, but another thing, just before I leave that topic of top-down, is that you know, I do think we need to change the incentives in the system. And right now, our system is still, even though we talk about value-based care, okay, it still has not really manifested in the way that we've been told it would. Right. And still, we're predominantly fee-for-service. Yeah. So in our system, the more a provider does, the more they get paid. Right. And if, as long as we continue to have that, we're going to continue to have these problems. You know, so we also need to work toward that. And that takes people in the trenches of practice working with the policymakers, right? So that's another piece. But I also think it has to be bottom-up. And so I think you know, there has to be more public education, you know, on pain, for example, on creating expectations, because I think our, you know, one of the problems here is that a lot of people just think that zero pain is the only standard, right? And it's just not realistic. I remember Stephen George at one of our professional meetings made this comment that zero pain is not always the goal. So we don't like to talk about having to cope with pain, but sometimes that's realistically what we have to do. And we have to establish more realistic expectations that, you know, we just can't keep throwing drugs at you until you're at a zero, right? Because that may not be an attainable goal. So there's a lot of things that we need to work on from a public education standpoint. And I will just mention one project that I'm working on with Excellus currently, but also through one of our higher education institutions, uh, Rochester Institute of Technology. We We've been in the process of trying to create a patient decision guide for people with spine pain. And now we're trying to build an app, essentially, that people could use to help them navigate, again, these multiple decisions that they make when they have spine pain, so that we can kind of create more of a guidance for the consumer, if you will, as well. So that's kind of in process right now. But I think, again, you know, more educational tools. Yeah, so important. I mean, that patient decision guide can be so important because People from listening to my podcast, they are moving their own thought about pain from that biomedical to that biopsychosocial. They're getting the message, at least from listening to my podcast. But then once they have the message, they're like, okay, I understand there are multiple factors that influence my pain, but where do I begin? 
where do I start? And who really understands this the way the experts on your podcast are talking about it? So the care pathway is important with regard to that. A patient decision guide is so important with regard to that. And then, you know, advocacy, you're talking about, you know, we need more boots on the ground, PTs and chiropractors, people who can be that primary care pain provider to push some of these pathways in that education is really important. I don't think enough of us really are doing that. You have, you know, your bio lists a lot of places where you're obviously, you know, donating your time. You're not being paid to, you know, talk on these committees. One committee that you're on through the New York Physical Therapy Association is called the Opioid Alternative Task Force, headed by Brennan Sullivan, who's a great PT, who's done a lot of work in the state with regard to um, payers and, you know, getting our services paid for with regard to physical therapy. Can you tell us a little bit about that opioid alternative task force and some of the things that you're working on there? Yeah, so, you know, we've created kind of a multi-pronged strategy. And, and of course, with your help as well, because you're on that committee as well, which we're very fortunate to have you. But, you know, it's, again, this, you know, kind of multi-pronged approach. So some of the things we've done, for example, was Health and Human Services put out a major document on best practices for pain management. And just, you know, kind of looking back on things we talked about, guess what? There was no physical therapists, there were no chiropractors on that task force that put this document together. And the document, quite frankly, looked like that. Um, So, you know, the one of the things we've done as a task force is we've been able to provide some input into that document and hopefully will translate into policy changes. There's opportunities uh, right now that CMS has put out for improving access to non-opioid therapies for musculoskeletal problems. So we can take advantage of some of those opportunities. We've also talked about working through the legislature. There's some very positive bills that have been introduced that would improve access for people with pain to some of these non-pharmacologic options, which is not anything we've specifically talked about. But, you know, we recognize now that there are better ways to treat pain. And if you look at the direction that clinical guidelines are going, they're going way away from that. any pharmaceuticals as a first option and really suggesting that we go a different route. And why? Because that is purely passive. And we know that more active care where people are involved in their care is better. It's just better for everybody. It's more effective. It's less expensive. But we have to be able to allow people to access those services and to reduce some of the barriers. So that's part of it as well. You know, as a task force, we also are putting ourselves out there to help educate different groups. Um, This is, you know, the opioid epidemic has been tragic, but it has really, I think more than anything, highlighted the problems that we have with pain management in our culture, you know, has evolved out of that culture, this epidemic. And so, it has been a wake-up call for all of us, you know, to do things better. Yeah. Uh, so I think, you know, I believe very strongly in the work of this task force because I think it's going to translate into better healthcare, yeah. truly valuable healthcare, which is really, you know, you have to look at the outcomes along with costs to make a judgment on value, right? So it should be the best outcomes for the least cost. Yeah. I agree. I mean, it's been interesting. Our task force is really just starting to get the wheels churning, but I see momentum already with some of the things that we're doing. Like you mentioned, we gave input to that important document where there was not a PT in that process. So I think that's going to be really important. And then we're just starting to now look at some data with regard, you know, we're a New York state task force. So we're starting to look at some data around the state. And I have some of this data that I'm working on specifically when I look at Bronx County. So Bronx is here in New York City. Mm-hmm. And then I look at Erie County in upstate New York. There are two counties that have really been, you know, devastated by the opioid epidemic as far as overdoses and as far as deaths. And I think when we release that information, PTs will have some of that and they can say, hey, I can be a major player at the table in helping prevent either someone being placed on an opioid that could send them down a bad route or to help them overcome if they are addicted and they're starting to be tapered off that opioid, which many patients now are starting to be tapered, I can be a, a key player of that team to help them taper off in a way that is more successful and a way that can help them cope better. So I'm excited to be on that task force. I think we're going to have great stuff developing in the future. Yes, I agree. 
It's been great chatting with you today on the podcast and great talk to you about, you know, the many years of work that you've put into the pain care and some of the things you developed. I love the pain pathway. I think we need to develop more pain pathways, not only with regard to spine care, but also other parts of the body and other types of diagnoses. And migraines, I think, is a big one that we need. I was just working with a migraine patient and it's amazing how much information she has and she doesn't know what to do with it. So I think those things are interesting. Tell people how we can learn more information about you and the things that you're going to be doing in the future. Probably one of the websites I wanted to share with you was with the PSP training. So for any clinicians out there that have an interest in looking at becoming a primary care provider, you know, I can certainly share with you their website of their program that was actually just recently featured on a local news show. You know, I have my own STAR physical therapy website. We try to put out a lot of patient education materials on our website. I can certainly share that with you. Those are the major avenues. Yeah. So we'll, of course, link. I'm going to include the links to the websites on our Facebook page. But just so you know, if you want to reach out to Dr. Spoto, her website is www.star-physicaltherapy.com. That's star-physicaltherapy.com. You can reach out to her there. She'll, of course, link you to all the information that she spoke about on the podcast with regard to care pathways and task force and, and everything. And of course, they'll be on the episode page on the Healing Pain Podcast. I want to thank Marsha for being with us this week and sharing some great information on pain care pathways and pain science and how we're going to move forward in the future. Make sure you share this information out with your friends and family on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter. Grab the link and drop it into your favorite Facebook group page where there are PTs and chiropractors who could benefit from this information. And of course, stay tuned. I want to see you all next week on the podcast where we share more and great information about pain care and pain science. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Healing Pain Podcast. For more information on this episode and access to links discussed, please visit drjotada.com and click on the podcast tab where you will find the blog post for this and all previous episodes and can sign up for Dr. Joe Tata's email list to receive the latest information on chronic pain. Also, make sure to stay connected on his Facebook page at Dr. Joe Tata. 